Act Now is produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. The audience comes with like a voracious intellectual appetite. They want to be challenged. They want to be stimulated. Our most successful plays have been by writers that make the audience feel as smart as they are. Hi, my name is Greg Molnar. I'm co-founder of Goal 17 Media, and we're the producers of Act Now. I've been going to the theater since I was a kid, and I've always been fascinated to understand how a director brings a play from page to stage. That creative process of envisioning what will be on stage when you're just reading the script. We're really proud to have an opportunity to talk and work with John Langs, the artistic director at Act Theater. You know, as an audience member, we see the wardrobe, we see the actors, the lighting and so on, but the directing to most of us is invisible. That's what we're gonna talk about today as we continue our conversation with John. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the first part of our conversation, please do when you have the time. You hear the story about when John sat down at the kitchen table and told his parents he wanted to be an actor. You'll hear about his story of becoming a director and what led him to act theater today. So John, let's talk about your tenure at ACT. What are the plays that in your mind defined ACT as a successful contemporary theater? That is a wonderful question. And I think we are ever evolving. It's hard to say in midstream um, with no distance to look back on it. But I will say some of the standouts for us have been certainly Passover which is a play that I think very few theaters in the country wanted to get involved with. It is and was a beautiful gut punch of a play based on uh, violence against African-Americans in our society. And it was structured on the bones of waiting for Godot. Did you guys hear? A fella was killed today. Black fella. Another black fellow was killed, I should say. It was a piece that I desperately wanted our audience to see. But a piece like that, you have to earn. Uh, you have to earn the right to do it. And, you know, we all kind of looked at each other and said, you know, we're going to do this the best way we know how. And it was a huge risk for us. And I think we were greatly rewarded for that particular production. Not to interrupt, but when you say earn the right to do it, what does that mean? Well, I think that. The Pacific Northwest and most theater companies up here are predominantly white institutions. And there is um, a respect that we have to pay if we're going to produce plays that really highlight the struggles of different communities. And those communities have to be involved in the making of these plays. And it can't be sort of like a tokenal relationship. And so you know, we were working for uh, a couple of years with different playwrights and um, creating space in the season for different uh, voices to emerge other than, you know, dead male white playwrights. Um, and at a certain point, a play comes along that's this powerful and you think, are we the people to do it? Are we the right people to do it? And it's still, it's still a, a question, but I know we got the right team and we got the right actors in the room and uh, we've been incredibly rewarded for that particular production. And it, you know, redoubled our commitment to platforming uh, voices that don't always have center stage. You remember that Sunday school? Oh, Reverend Mrs. They're like, say I said Moses. <laughs> Lord, mm, I do declare 
You about the best little boy up in this Sunday school. You better live up to that name too, ain't ya? Lead these boys off these streets of violence, mm. streets of anger. Mm. Lead these boys off to that brown slave. I think the other great risks that we have taken, I point to um, the production of Romeo and Juliet that we just did, which was a bilingual Romeo and Juliet, sign language and Shakespeare's English combined in a very contemporary context to make the story of Romeo and Juliet come alive in a way that no one has ever seen before. So that was a huge risk and we got in way over our heads but I had a 13 person cast, which is tiny for Romeo and Juliet, and sign language interpretation in many different forms and deaf actors on stage with hearing actors putting together this beautiful, full-blooded version of Romeo and Juliet. And because of the sign language and because of the poetry of Shakespeare, I think the audience got an entirely different experience because his poetry was brought to life in the language of ASL, which is uh, was stunning to watch. So a risk like that, we didn't know if it would pay off and it paid off tenfold for us. So those are the adventures that I like to put the company on, that they just feel terrifying, just out of reach. I always know when I'm scared and the company is scared that we're probably moving in the right direction. So in that, in that play, in Romeo and Juliet, was part of the dialogue spoken? And then part just signed. Yeah. So in the audience, and I'm I'm deaf, I can get half of it, and I'm sitting in the audience and I can't read sign language. Do I get half of it? I mean, how do how does that come across to a mixed audience like that? Well, we wanted to make sure that the deaf audience had the same accessibility uh, to all of the language as the hearing audience did. Um, so couple of things happened. First, we had multiple performances that were signed uh, by uh, a group of translators. We also had closed captioning. So at ACT Theater, we have a closed captioning system. So if you are deaf or that you're hard of hearing, then the closed captioning devices can slide right in front of you. You can read everything that goes along. But my idea about the play was to be able to be clear with the storytelling throughout for anybody. So we worked physically and with a lot of choral speaking. So when there were scenes that were completely in sign language, that the hearing audience would, would have been left out, except for the fact that we used a tool of choral speaking to allow them to hear all the words as well. Well, I have to ask you, if those were the successes, what was the risk you took that the, the uh, reviewers just panned? What was the one you thought was going to work and just died? I'm I'm gonna probably take the Fifth Amendment on on um, some of the board members not listening to this part of the yeah of the I I just I don't want to be ungenerous with some of the people who worked very hard to make some things that didn't completely measure up to what I think act excellence is and that ha I've done it I've certainly done it oh you know what I think I think I can tell you about one and it was our overarching ambition and I would never apologize for doing this show but it was not done. Um, I chose a show because I needed a two-person show in the season. And this is just the math of being an artistic director. I needed, I could afford two actors on stage. And gosh darn it, we're a bold contemporary theater. I want something new and I want to put my chips down on a, on a hungry new playwright. And so we went into this piece called Alex and Eris that was stunning. I mean, I thought the language of it was 
just gorgeous. And, and it was the, the journey of Alexander the Great meeting Aristotle, his teacher, because Aristotle trained Alexander the Great. But the playwright needed way more room than a two-person play. Is the king still an oaf? <laughs> I knew him when he was younger, new to Athens. You could smell him coming around a corner. And we were bending over backwards trying to fit a, this story uh, with just two people. What I should have done is canceled the production, hired 14 actors, put it into workshop for two years, and brought it back as the, sort of the full-throated play that it should have been. But, you know, we made a choice. We were under deadline. We sold some tickets. People, there were people who were huge fans of it and who loved it and loved the intellectual stimulation of it. And there was a significant portion of our audience that was like, huh, what, what, what just happened? Um, so I would say swinging for the fences, but you're never gonna be a great theater without swinging for the fences. So one of the things ACT is known for is premiering new plays. And you've done over 40 or 50 of them. And so my question is, what's the challenge of taking on a brand new play as a director? Yeah, there's nothing more challenging. Um, as a director than taking on a new play. Uh, you just are walking on virgin snow the whole time. You're making your own tracks. It's exhilarating. But I tell you, those nights in previews, when the audience, the very first audience, hears a play for the first time, that's really where the learning starts. And of course, then you only have a week left to change whatever you feel like is working or not working. So it is a high wire act that is addictive and really exciting um, and very scary. And it also demands a trust relationship with the individual who is the playwright and the director that is, it's intense. Y you know, you are, because as makers sitting in that room where it all happens with you, the audience around us, we feel every breath, every cough, every shift of your seat. And then at the end of the play, when we're rattled, we usually go have a scotch and sit down and say, okay, how do we make it better tomorrow night? And that may mean that we come back in with a whole new script for the next day for the actors who then get their chance to be completely rattled because we're going to send them out without the armor of preparation, just go make it work. But I'll tell you when it does work, uh, it is, it's the thrill of a lifetime. Well, when you're producing a play that's been produced many times in the past, I imagine the playwright isn't that involved. But in a premiere, is the playwright sort of at your side? And, and how do you manage that chemistry of having the playwright with you as you're trying to design the staging for this new play? Well, hopefully you've built trust through the rehearsal process and you've checked in. It's like a marriage. You cannot let resentment build between you, the two of you. If you don't clear the air on a regular basis, you may find yourself sitting in a preview with a playwright who hates the work that you've done so much, they just throw their script at you and walk out the door. Or you may find yourself uh, saying, I'm right about act two, we need to cut five minutes out of it. And that playwright saying, no way. And it's actually, you know, then it becomes who gets to make the final decision. Um, sometimes contractually, the director is the big dog, and sometimes contractually, the writer is the big dog. And uh, that, I mean, you know, the producing company is the big dog, not necessarily the director. But it is an intense relationship. And I've had some really good experiences 
my last experience was exceptional. Yusuf El-Gindi, who is our core company playwright, it's the first time I got to direct a world premiere of his. And I actually just went to school. He knows his plays so well, and he watches tension in a room so astutely that at a certain point, I just said, I'm all yours, man. Tell me what you think, and I will go and deliver the play that you want. Um, and I would say 99.8% of the time, he was dead on. And I learned a lot. You mentioned you have a core group of actors. How does that benefit you as a director? And does it create any limitations on wanting to cast for a new play? Yes, the core. I started the core company the very first year I was the artistic director. I told you before, I love actors. And I, I also think that it was important that a group of actors does their best work when they feel safe, when they feel like they have a home, and when they feel like they're playing for the home team. And I wanted to give them um, that feeling, a feeling of this is your place. I also wanted a group of artist ambassadors, those brave people who could both go into the process of making a play and then return from it and be able to share what that experience is like with a broader audience. But the magic of it really is the second or third time you work together and then you kind of know each other's tricks and you have to go deeper and you have a shorthand where sometimes it's just like, yeah, I know what you're going to ask me to do because I've worked with you third three times and I'm not going to do that yet. I'll get there for you, but let me try this. And trust is developed. So all of the politicking and the negotiation that goes on with, hello, we haven't met each other. I'd like you to do this romantic scene with someone you've never met. And here's how we're going to do it. And all the tension that goes along with this, it diminishes quite a bit when you have developed a trust with a group of actors. So that's on the positive side. Is it limiting? Um, you know, like I said, I read these plays and I think of my core um, and where they can go, but we haven't limited ourselves exclusively to use core because I believe that cross-pollination is important. They are the leaders in the room most of the time because they feel the most ownership and the most comfort. But every once in a while, there's a role that calls for somebody outside of the core company, sometimes outside of the Seattle community. And then you want to bring in somebody that's going to shock everybody awake. You know, you want to bring in a craftsman uh, and an artist that you better, uh, that everybody says, wow, I've got to up my game. I think that's healthy too, right? That, that we, we get to cross-pollinate like that. And I would love my core to go out to different cities as well. And some of them do, Broadway and <clears throat> London, and, and they do work there. And then they bring back like an incredible amount of richness. So we've talked about premieres. How do you put your brand on a play that's been directed and performed so many times over the years? I know Broadway recently uh, brought out a whole new vision of West Side Story. Oh, yes. So, but how do you take a play that's been performed so many times, how do you rebrand it in your vision? And what are the risks of doing that? Well, I think the risks are that you will, when you brand it, and it's interesting, that word is very interesting, because uh, I go back to the invisible director. And, but I will say that your job is as an artist. How do you, and nobody is gonna direct, if you are truly authentic with who you are and how you connect to a play, Nobody's version of Long Day's Journey into Night by Eugene O'Neill will look like any other director's version of Long Day's Journey if they've done the work specifically and clear. The cast will be different, the setting will be different, but ultimately, just like any interpreter, 
which is what a director is when they're working on an older play. Your interpretation is built by your life, by your experiences. My relationship with my father is Jamie's relationship to James Tyrone. I see it very particularly because I've had these episodes with my father that make me think, oh, I know who these two people are together. But another director comes along and that's not maybe the sweet spot for them of how the play lights them up. So perhaps it's Mary Tyrone and, you know, James and the relationship between husband and wife. So every director gets their interpretation and that is what creates uniqueness. And that, and if they've gone there, they've really gone there, it will be authentic and it will be a wildly different production. When you're interpreting that play, how much are you influenced by the way it's done in the past? Or do you look at it as a clean slate and just look at how you would interpret and direct that play. Yeah, you know, Greg, I read I read reviews. I don't necessarily go back. You can watch a lot of archival footage, but I what I do is I gather a bunch of reviews about the play and they kind of create a balance beam for me. Like, oh, here's how somebody like completely achieved this remarkable production. And and you know, the way a reviewer describes that production can give me clues about um, some of the thematic threads that can be really resonant. And then you read productions that are like, ooh, they screwed this up. And um, it was just a talkathon and everybody was bored. And here's why they missed this, 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 and this. And then you're like, okay, along with reading the play and making it authentic, this gives me a sort of like ideological balance beam to walk um, as I'm thinking about the production. Like, oh, there's traps over here and there's pay dirt over here. And I think that has assisted me a great deal in my preparation. The theater is much broader than actors and directors. There's marketing, there's accounting and so on. So going back to say Romeo and Juliet, if you're going to take a whole new spin on that, and let's just say I'm coming in and I haven't seen Romeo and Juliet before, do you announce to the city that this is your version, that this is a new look at the play. So when I come in, I know this is different. Or if I've seen it before, am I excited to see it this time? Or is that something you just hold back and let people discover? I don't think you can hold back too much because you got to get butts in the seats and you don't want to bait and switch people. And I, and I saw the faces of people who came in and had no idea because um, you know even though we had great marketing on the show, and we kind of, I think we put, it's like you've never seen before. And that wasn't a statement of like, you know, arrogance. That was a statement of like, this is not going to be like what you've seen before. But, you know, on a both poster or a billboard or a flyer, um, you can describe stuff. But how often do you read the fine print? And some people like me, I want to go in and be totally surprised. But this is great to walk into that theater and sit down and, you know, you're watching Romeo and Juliet and two minutes into it, Friar Lawrence starts his big monologue in sign language and half of the audience goes, what the hell is going on right now? And the joy of watching that production was how little by little the barriers between these cultures fell away. And that's really what the play is about. So the form suited the function and I was able to watch moment by moment. And when the lovers come on, they were terrifically engaging actors. Um, and I just watched everybody's critical judgment melt away and they got to see the play new and walked out thinking that was totally unexpected. And because of the distance that I had to cross 
was very special. We've talked about Seattle being a very progressive and supportive theater town. Act has had a collaborative relationship with Fifth Avenue for some time. Great, how, does, yeah. how does that work? How does a, a, a smaller contemporary theater like Act collaborate with a large uh, theater known mostly for large musicals? Yeah, it was uh, I, in a previous podcast when we were talking about our next co-production of Chili Finger, I mentioned the genius of uh, my predecessor, Kurt and David Armstrong at the Fifth Avenue, who were looking around uh, at the landscape of theater in Seattle and musical theater was changing. and there was a lot more writing for intimate venues, shows that would be much more powerful musicals in a small space than in the Fifth Avenue, which is gorgeous, but it's huge. Um, so they concocted this amazing partnership where we would pool resources and audience and do co-productions once a year, which uh, the Fifth Avenue audience walks down to act theater, um, and the genius of it for the artists is that because we have to serve now so many patrons, because both of our patron bases come together, we get to run these shows for, you know, 13 weeks sometimes. That's 13 weeks of work for actors and musicians. And, and the joy of watching a play grow over that time is not something we get a lot in this city. So they put this thing together. The second year, their second collaboration, they took this beautiful musical first date to Broadway. Um, and, you know, as many of our listeners know, Seattle is a great training ground for music theater. Uh, many, many new productions have been built here out of the white hot glare of New York and moved on to New York, come from away, for example. It's a big success for the city, I think. So this partnership has gone on now for nine years, the 10th musical we're just coming up on. And now Bill Barry, who took over from David, is a dear friend. And we really talked about really focusing the mission of those co-productions to do brand new musical theater or real true reinventions of uh, classic musicals. How do you decide which theater presents the show? Well, the co-production always comes to act theater because the intention of it is to bring um, an intimate uh, intimate experience to life. That's what the co-pro is, is at act theater. We have talked about doing a co-pro that moves over to the fifth. We, we may do that at some point, but in the 10 years that we've been working on it, it's always worked better to bring the theater, uh, the Fifth Avenue Theater to act. Uh, Act has five different stages, and each year you go through your process of choosing plays. I'm curious, who is involved in making that decision? How do you factor in the size of the different stages, your core group of actors, and of course, budget? It's an exhilarating process every year. It is the hardest work that we do, and we start almost two years in advance. Um, so when I came in, you know, Kurt was uh, remarkable at choosing a season, and I think he... It, it, Ultimately, it comes down to gut instinct that you feel like you're building a dialogue with Seattle is the most important thing that you can be doing. So what are the conversations that we want to have? That's part one. Part two is that, you know, you're reading the tea leaves about when the play goes up, where's the world going to be? You know, this year we're programming over an election year. And do we want to lean into that or do we want to pull out of that? So gut instinct, where the world's going to be, and then you get the smartest people you can around you, and you listen to them. The core company has been instrumental. It's a very diverse, multi-generational group, and we read plays together. And they have often told me, 
you know, we demand that you do this play. <laughs> this is the play that we would most like to see and don't screw around. And there's also been times where we read a play and people are outraged. They're like, why would you do this? Why would anyone want to sit through this? Now, outrage is a powerful emotion. So outrage doesn't always rule out the fact that we would do a play. But I am looking in around this very smart community and I have board members who I send plays to and trusted colleagues who I send plays to. And I want enough feedback uh, for, you know, say 15 or 16 shows that then through the course of budgeting, we can whittle down to something that fits because that's the next sphere we have to go through in terms of creating something that's we can actually do. And some shows will be cheaper in the round because there's less scenery. Some shows require video. We can't do those in the round. We've got to do them in the Falls Theater. Some shows need a very intimate audience. And so we have the uh, Laley Theater, which is a beautiful black box. And some things are just going to be a rollicking good musical time. And so we have the cabaret space. So the plays, because of who they are, what they represent, kind of pick the spaces. And when all of that's done, then we've got a season. Is it just the creative team that's involved in that process? Or do you have someone from accounting, someone from sales? Who? What are the group of people that are in that room when that final decision gets made? By the time artistic goes through it, we have pretty big slate of plays. And I have my horses in the race that I really hope that, I, that we'll get to the finish line. But ultimately, the production manager, our amazing production manager, Alyssa Montgomery, uh, Becky Whitmer, who is our executive, uh, I'm sorry, managing director. Uh, the two of them weigh in heavily on what we can afford, and they, they have terrific points of view, you know, too. So I'm thinking as an artist, what could be most exciting? And I think about the audience, and they are thinking about who's going to buy tickets, and can we actually get our production team to build these shows? What cadence are we going to build them in so we can make it all inexpensive and work for us? Is there one play that's on your wish list? Is there one play that you really want to do that maybe you've brought up every year and you just can't quite find the way to pull it off? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of plays that are that just continually seem to be out of reach. And one is a new play, um, and it's about the making of the atomic bomb. And it's just a big, beautiful intellectual, thrilling piece of theater. And I haven't figured out a way to afford it yet. Chili Finger is on the list. There's a beautiful show called Boys of Vedem that I'm really interested in, which is a remarkable story about Holocaust survivors. Well, you mentioned Chili Finger, and that's in this year's slate of plays. So let's move to this year. Uh, unfortunately, a, a not so funny thing happened on the way to the forum. <laughs> Yes. So you're, you're getting ready to launch your new season. And in a prior podcast, we talked about what happened with the cast of Sweat. But now you're sitting here and you're looking ahead with an uncertain future. Where is the process for ACT right now? Where is you're talking with your other partners? Where are you guys and, and how are you approaching this? Well, two things. I think it's an existential moment for theater. We are a community art form. Theater happens when people are in the same room breathing together. And for the foreseeable future, we don't know if that's going to be safe. So we are making plans. Um, we had a beautiful season this year, the 2020 season. I don't know if we'll be able to do any of it based on what we're hearing about the pandemic. The question I'm asking myself right now is, 
do I offer a season next year of the same plays that we missed this year? But I'm leaning towards taking into consideration where the world will be at the end of this and what stories are they going to need and want to see when we come back together. I think about two actors in space kissing for the first time. I don't know a whole lot of plays that don't involve kissing, but what a radical act and a courageous act that will be, both from the audience that's coming into the theater and the actors performing on stage. And I also know that there is an opportunity in this crisis. It's like your house burned down and you get to step back and look at that plot of land. And now you have the opportunity to build the house that you've always wanted. So all of those things are being considered at ACT Theater with the staff and the board and the core company. And we have a lot of ideas about if the form of theater needs to change. A lot of what ifs about could there be, you know, for example, if you bought a season to ACT Theater in 2021 and we couldn't socially gather, would your subscription come with a pair of virtual reality goggles? And you would pick an avatar and walk the virtual halls of ACT Theater and sit in a virtual seat in, in, in an audience that has picked avatars and gathers around you? And could you be immersed in a play, a great play, where you could have a 3D experience? So that's one of the outside radical ideas. Do we start to film a la you know, National Theater Live and put that stuff online? It's an exciting time. And whenever I'm not doing a podcast, I'm working on the future of ACT Theater and what that could be. Let's let the board members know you spend very little time working on this podcast. <laughs> oh, I, I think that they, they're, they're happy that we're getting um, our voice out there. Well, quickly, everyone's trying to raise funds to get through this, this time. And I know Arts Fund was trying to raise capital to support all the groups. Yep. Uh, I know ACT is trying to raise capital. Uh, how's it going and, and how can people support you through this process? Because arts, you know how I feel about this, are the hearts and soul of this community. And the theater district not only presents great plays, but it brings thousands of people down to support the restaurants and retail and so on. Are there things that maybe aren't as obvious that the patrons of ACT and just the supporters of arts in the city could be doing to help you guys along? That's a great question. We have had incredible generosity from all corners of our tried and true stakeholders at ACT Theater. But survival for our institution is on our mind. And like you said, we are a driver of the engine of economy downtown. We, there is a whole group of actors that are employed that get their health insurance um, by work in the theater. Um, and that's a tricky time. Uh, makes you question, you know, why we attach health insurance to our jobs. But more than that, the spirit of a city is in the arts that it makes. And I think the reason that Seattle grew so fast, historically fast, is that it's a vibrant scene. People want to live a cultural life. People want to be stimulated. People want new ideas. People want to be taken to places, you know, that only the imagination of artists can bring them. And if you value that, then we must get our arts organizations healthy after this pandemic. Otherwise, we're gonna be living in a very bland world. Well, John, thanks for your time. We talked about taking it from page to stage, and I wanted to get a better understanding of what goes through that process, and I think the audience wanted that as well, and you've done a, a great job. And the next time I go to a theater, I'm gonna have a much greater appreciation for what's happening on the stage. I appreciate your time, but more importantly, 
we all appreciate what you've done for this community and what you've done bringing that group of core actors together. But it's more than that. I mean, ACT is a living, breathing thing. It's accounting, it's administration, it's advertising, it's ticket sales. And so when people think about supporting the arts in this community, it's a much broader support and a much more important contribution to this community than just plays. And we just want to say thank you for everything you've done. Wow, that is tremendously gracious. And um, I do admit to needing to hear that today. It's tough. It's tough not being at work. And um, and the, the compassion that I have for all artists and all the people who are going through this thing, who need art, um, is huge. And, and I want to get back to work. So I really appreciate you, Greg, and Goal 17 Media and everything that you're doing to set the world right. Thank you. The sort of byline for Goal 17 Media is storytellers for the common good. But the second one is we're supposed to care about each other. And now more than ever, we can just continue to keep that simple idea ahead of us and we can all care about each other, then we're going to get through this just fine. Thanks, John. Thank you.